Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome back to the latest episode of the Telegraph Rugby Podcast. The Six Nations is done and dusted and Ireland have won a second Grand Slam in the space of five years. They got there in the end against England after a few nerves but it was an impressive performance from Andy Farrell's side. I'm Ben Coles, the Telegraph Rugby reporter, and I'm joined in the studio by Charlie Morgan. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Ben. And also by Charles Richardson. Hello, Charles. Hello, everybody. Charlie was in Dublin. Charles was in Paris. So we're going to get their insights on what was a very, very fun final day of action in the Six Nations. Charlie, if I come to you first, what was your favourite bit of your couple of days in Dublin? And please say the Guinness. Oh, yeah. Well, that was top three. Okay. On, can I give you an on-pitch highlight? Yeah. Because yeah. I actually got on the pitch. Oh. Well, the, the post-match media, the post-match mix zone in Ireland Ooh. was uh, pitch sides. That was a really nice, sort of felt right in the middle of a few Freed from Desire um, renditions. I heard A bit that. of the Cranberries. Yeah. And yeah, that was really cool. Took a couple of um, videos, actually, like a real uh, fan with a laptop. But it was, um, it was fun, yeah. Uh, Charles, what about Paris? What did you enjoy? Um... On field has to be the Antoine Dupont pass. It's becoming cliched now. We say it every week about how amazing it is, but that pass for France's first try, I think it was, wasn't it, with Damien Penault scoring in the corner, was um, just something to behold. It took my breath away. Off field, Friday night, I was um, I had the privilege to attend a, a reunion of the 1987 Rugby World Cup finalists, um, the French, French finalists. So Serge Blanco, Philippe Seller, Denis Chavez, a lot of them, um, all there, uh, Laurent Rodriguez, all there celebrating, uh, raising a lot of money for the Rugby World Cup 2023 charity. Um, and it was a fantastic evening um, in the Hotel de Ville in the centre of Paris. And that was, yeah, memories that will stay with me for a long time, I think. How are they? Are they all well? Yeah, very well. Oh, yeah, very, looking very well. <laughs> very, very well. Serge Blanco looks very well. He enjoys himself. Okay. Hope you're listening, Serge. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear it. Let, uh, just a quick word before we dive into the the Ireland England game. The, the tournament as a whole, I think we we sort of agreed between us chatting over the weekend has been one of the best Six Nations. I, I think certainly in, in the top bracket. Charlie, would you say it's right up there? Yeah. So Ireland and France brought the ceiling up, and Italy brought the floor up. Right. So I know Ireland and uh, sorry England and Wales are sort of struggling in the middle of um, that make believe house that I've just made up, but that was um, yeah good. It was good good tournament overall. Um, I think we were always going to get sides, weren't we? In 
in a bit of a groove um, because of where we are in the World Cup cycle. But that no, was good. Charles? Yeah, I certainly think it's one of the one of the best Six Nations that I can remember. Um, certainly in terms of standard of rugby and certainly in terms of some of the matches, you think of that Titanic um, Ireland-France match in Dublin in the second round as probably the highlight in terms of across the games. Um, I did think... I don't know. I, I did think Saturday was a bit deflating, though. I, I did leave that. You were, you were, yeah, hungover. I, yeah, I did think. I did think Saturday. I was deflated on Saturday night. I thought. I thought Scotland and Italy was a bit of a damp scrub of a game. I thought. I didn't think Italy were very good at all and very underwhelming. France, Wales. They nearly, they nearly won at Murrayfield. They nearly won at Murrayfield, but Scotland were dreadful. Yeah, the game, the game as a spectacle was dreadful. I just thought both teams were quite poor, really, and and I think Scotland on that showing, Scotland did not deserve to finish third in the table. But on the across the tournament, obviously they did. And then France, Wales, France really never really got out of third gear. Wales started very well, um, and then France took their foot off the gas in the second half in a game that was eventually a dead rubber, and then a rank red card ruined the Grand Slam decider. So I think all in all, in terms of Super Saturday, I think I'd take the word Super out of the Saturday's events. Can I retrospectively retrospectively add a off-field highlight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I you said you had three and you I, gave me one. I turned, I turned around in a, in a pub in Dublin on the Friday night and saw one of my best mates from school, who's an avid listener oh. of this, which is lovely. Oh, um, that's good. Yeah, brilliant. It's like really, really, uh, yeah, really refreshing. Have they left a, the weekend. a positive review under the podcast? Because I'll, those uh, are very welcome. I'll be nudging. I'll be nudging. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you very much, listeners. Okay, well, we've danced around it. Let's hear about what happened in Dublin and Ireland. Grand Slam champions again. Okay, we, we sort of hinted at it in the intro, but Ireland did start fairly nervously, Charlie. But But that wasn't necessarily because, obviously, there was a lot of emotion about the game and the pressure of everyone assuming that they were just wiping in the side. But England really contributed to that, didn't they, with the way that they played? Massively, yeah. They, they were early jitters, early and understandable jitters from Ireland. But we've spoken about this before, haven't we? Teams playing badly against England when they move the ball. So Japan in, in November, uh, Italy earlier this tournament, Ireland going through phases. Sometimes they were scrambled by really good steely defence but also good decision making around the, around the breakdown from England they generally kept players on their feet Jack Willis was given licence to compete and that worked well for them they got burst a few times as you'd expect against Ireland but scrambled really well and I've, I've written a piece this morning that's gone live that, that is just about how this has to be an absolute baseline for England I certainly think they, they, they contributed to just they always they wanted a fast start and it didn't have to be a you know a, a tone setting try like they as they kind of got used to under Eddie Jones but they just had to be assertive at the start which they were um well apart apart from that we me and Charles have just been speaking um away from the pod about uh, the Owen Farrell penalty which was the first penalty in that and England were a bit loose with their discipline but they sort of had to be right on the edge didn't they just because they were always going to be they were always going to be fired up and determined to kind of restore a bit of pride after that's what seems even weirder in in retrospect the performance against France hmm. yeah um, I, I was just going to say on that uh, Jack Willis uh, you mentioned him had 20 tackles by half time which I think actually broke his own record for tackles per m- minute or whatever which he set earlier in the tournament against Italy which which 
sort of summed up what an impressive performance it was from him. And and also it was the way that they just never let Ireland sort of launch those strike plays or, or get the line-out base, which they really wanted. There was, there was through, a their of, through their physicality, really. I thought there, there were layers to that England England defensive performance. They were re- really hard-working and, and quite clever with how they went about phase play defence, clever apart from the, a couple of late tackles, which were kind of avoidable. Um, they, I know Ireland eventually... Scored that um, that set play off the back of a mall with Dan Sheehan scoring um, on about the half hour mark. But there are a couple of other kind of set plays that England identified and shut down. The dummy loop, um, the tag, tag furlongs pass to Keenan was shut down, but there was cover there. And in the second half, which led to Maratoji's kind of rumbling celebration, um, that was uh, that was a, a trick, a sort of variation on a trick play that Ireland had split. England within t- in 2021, if you remember Keith Earls going through. So uh, England were alert, but uh, but as I say, that just has to be non-negotiable. The, the the pillars of that performance, how they kicked, how they defended, and then aspects of their set piece. I'll be a bit annoyed, I think, with a few line-out lapses, but that just has to be non-negotiable from here, and they actually have to get they have to layer on that pretty quickly now too. They didn't trouble Ireland very much ball in hand, did they? From no. from memory, like they had that good. That good passage at the end of the towards well midway towards the end of the first half, um, I think Manu Twelling ended up bun- getting bundled into touch, and that felt like a big moment big because moment. they'd gone through sort of maybe ten or fifteen phases there. I, I think really big, like classic Peter Omani intervention. You kind of um, it mean it feels more significant in retrospect, but Freddie Stewart hits a line. I think England of England about five six meters out. Freddie Stewart hits a one of those kind of arcing um, out to win. Like in the Prem like, final, yeah, like one of one of one of those lines, and he goes into Sexton. He tries to identify Sexton and, and kind of blast through Sexton. Sexton just about absorbed it was absorbs the impact, and Omani comes, crashes him back another couple of meters, and then that's the that's the momentum that Ireland need. And then I think it, it ends with uh, James Lowe without a hair tie, yeah, by, by yeah. Ling Manu too. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. I really enjoyed. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Just seeing him sort of. You did. You, ta- you did text me. I think herring around. Oh, here we go. There we go. It's there true. Go. It just really leapt out. I last, mean, last pod. You've touched on it there, Charles. In a way, it, there was a sort of a, a vibe from England of they were going there for a street fight in a way, mm. and, and that that was the way they were going to contain Ireland, and, and that was how they were going to win. It wasn't going to be through anything overly flash. No, and I think they stood up I, I, in that regard. I think they stood up to the challenge. Really, I think they, they, there was a, 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 a real concerted difference from the France performance in terms of physicality, in terms of application, in terms of line speed. You can obviously see what they've been working on over the past week and I do think that there was a difference there and I think that the the red cards, which we'll come on to, killed them really. I think if if Freddie Stewart hadn't been sent off, would England have won? We'll never know, but I think it would have been pretty close as in they had Ireland rattled. They, They even had Ireland rattled at the start of the second half with 14 and they held them out that also speaking of big moments at the end of the end of the first half not allowing Ireland to score that also felt like a big moment with 14 men holding out the best team in the world at home going for a grand slam you felt there oh god they might get quite a lot of belief from this it felt like so throughout that first half it felt like England England as you say Colsey they they they'd come with a plan to disrupt and scrap and spoil and they'd done that again penalties notwithstanding fairly in a fairly disciplined manner if that doesn't sound stupid with the, with the penalties but then I think on 38 um, Carl Slinker comes from an off, offside position inside Ireland's half so he gives away another penalty Johnny Sexton turns around to his whole back line before he kicks the penalty into touch so you know that England have to withstand one more 
strike play. Ireland go up the guts, don't they? And then they flood around and it's a brilliant um, defensive read from Anthony Watson on the edge to, to rush Hansen into the, into the offload that leads to the Stewart incident. Um, but you, before that penalty, you thought, right, it's one more little moment that they've got to withstand. And then they, they withstand that, um, but then concede a red card, withstand another one. And I thought actually that it kind of galvanized them a little bit as mm. it as it did last year with Charlie Ewell's red yeah. card, um, but the yeah the problem was it was just too and that's and that's the thing with Ireland it was a it, they had England had a maul twenty five minutes to go at ten nine and then they had another they were on the cusp of Ireland's twenty two at ten nine about five minutes later with there was a big Ryan Baird jackal turnover he was great by the way I thought Jack Conan thought. was the one that got in with that buried in with that maul and and disrupted that and Jamison Gibson Park comes away with it so those two turnovers really really big moments and then the thing with Ireland is that they can go like the like the very best elite all black sides they can go 7 14 21 whatever five, you know 5 12 19 yeah five it, it's five like, and sevens they go in five yeah. and sevens <laughs> and then they and they they just snuff the life out of you and that's what they did in that last 15 25 20 20 20, 15 minutes. It's not fair that Dan Sheehan is is a hooker by position because he's so fast and, and has yeah. acceleration, which most front rowers don't have. And, and that's actually the the first try with the way that was created off the wall with Josh Handefleer's movement and then Sheehan's loop. It just I don't know if there are many other hookers who have that same burst to hit that hole as well no. as they did. And, and England weren't ready for it. Where they, they were sort of Don Brandt was sort of caught on his own, having to handle Vanderfleer, and suddenly there was a huge, huge space on his inside. Um, was it, yeah, who was it who scored that one? Was it Pierre Bourgari at La Rochelle who scored oh yeah, that he, wonder he try, le- length, length of the field? It's shades of him. But yeah, Sheehan in, in Cardiff first round looked absolutely rapid lightning there, like quicker than I've ever seen him, actually. Tokiaho? He's got, yeah, he's got, he's got some toe. Um, one ma- major, major plus point, actually, for England in, in all of the... In all of the rubble might be a bit strong, but let's go with it, is the scrum. The scrum, which had been identified as a major area of weakness, but actually was cracking on Saturday in Dublin against one of the best front rows in the world. And it seems like Ellis Genja's got the wool on tie Furlong a little bit because with 14 men last year at Twickenham, Genja got the better of Furlong and he did again um, on Saturday. And props what, to Richard Cockrell. I was just going to say, watching on TV, that battle in particular was was really interesting because uh, the first one you thought, oh, I wonder if that's a bit 50-50. Mm. But then the then the second one came and you thought, oh, whatever Genji's doing here, Yaka Paper's buying it. And yeah. that's the key, right, isn't it? That's what England yeah. said before Perception. England England said this before the tournament. It said that we've been below our best scrummaging wise, but actually now the real damaging thing is that we have got this reputation as a as a side that goes down under pressure and can see penalties under pressure and, and just lapses in the fight as mm. they did in as they did in the autumn. So yeah, it's got to sift through a bit of rubble maybe yeah certainly more so more rubble than uh might have been ideal given that given the france result but i do think that they're that's they've, they've certainly got something to kind of the, to build on into the world cup summer the next thing we need to talk about is the the red card um brian moore's done a column on the telegraph rugby website this morning which says that don't hate the player hate the game frustration needs to go towards the law not the referees exactly yeah the, these are the rule these are the laws that have been established the law was followed by Jakob paper going through the framework and that was how he arrived at, at his decision charles you you're looking at me with a, a mild grimace let let's let's chat about it can you can you see why paper got to that point but equally do you think it was a bit mad um yes um i, I think that 
world rugby here need to come out and and I know they don't like adjudicating individual decisions but I think it would be very very helpful for everybody if they came out and said what the correct decision here was was Piper right was did he apply the framework correctly or didn't he because that's the crux here and at the minute the silence is 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 deafening in a sense because Yako Piper's being held out sort of hung out to dry a bit um you have to say that as rugby fans nobody wants to see that as a red card i think i think that is a fundamental truth that nobody wants to see that as a red card yes we have to protect players and that a lot of players are getting concussion and there's a lot of lawsuits knocking about now regarding the game and there's going there could be a lot of money paid out and that needs to change but if you're giving that as a red card then i don't see how the sport can continue mm. <laughs> into these circumstances because that was completely accidental Freddie Stewart had a millisecond to react. There'd been a knock-on, which changes everything. I, and also, if you want, just going back to Jaco Piper, in terms of the framework, he said absolutely no mitigation. I mean, I, I, I actually thought that Hugo Keenan did drop. I did think there was a dip, actually, yeah. a late dip from Hugo Keenan, which, considering the fact that Jaco Piper should have used contextual judgment to note that this was completely accidental and that Freddie Stewart was not turning his shoulder to shoulder charge someone as the suggestion and insinuation was. Given all those facts, when you add in the knock-on, when you add in the slight Hugo Keenan drop, I think all of those things can add up to quite a strong mitigation. It doesn't necessarily need to be one thing that mitigates. You know, you can have several different areas that all add up to mitigation. And I think, I think even a yellow card would have been harsh. I just, just to add to that, I, I think it, um, there's often this argument about slow motion replays, isn't there? And actually, slow. We shouldn't necessarily have multiple angles and repeats of slow mo replays of incidents like that because it can cloud your judgment in one way or another. I, I can't remember from at the time whether a, an actual live sort of replay was shown to Yaka Paper when the incident was being reviewed sort of in real time. I remember Luke Pierce doing it a couple be, of times because, saying can I, can I see that in real time? Because I think actually if you view it in real time you do appreciate more that it is purely clumsiness at worst really from Stuart. Slow, slow motion, sure you can you can tick all the boxes and, and yeah, get to a red card absolutely. quite easily. I can but see, you could probably do that a million times again. how we did that. So I wonder this argument about should we be reviewing things in live as well as slow-mo I think that's a, actually a really strong example of they, something they need to think about because I, I don't think you give the red card if you if you look at it in real no. time and they also made that decision very quickly I thought I thought they came to that mm. decision very quickly Marius Jonka the TMO was very quick to come in and say there are no more angles and then it was seemed like the, the, his mind had been made up uh, that quickly and uh, Nigel Owens wrote about this in the Telegraph a few weeks ago um, about how speed, speed of decisions is all well and good, but you can't sacrifice accuracy for that. And I feel like less use of the TMO is where is what we need to strive for, but make sure that it is for the key decisions and you take your time over those key decisions. For instance, in that first half, Jakob Piper reviewed a potential knock-on crossing penalty scrum. Which had been called in... Either by the touch judge or by which had been called in from from a box from an Irish box kick, a potential blocking line from Anthony Watson. We had to go upstairs to review it. That is not something that we should be going upstairs for. A margin, a marginal blocking call. Less than delighted with that. Quite, and that's so. What I would say is there. Take that out. Play on there, and spend the time that it took to review that call. 
looking further at the steward at the potentially game-changing, Grand Slam-defining, potentially, incident that happened at the end of the first half and make sure you get that call right. Because I think as a, whatever, whatever the laws are, whatever the framework is, I think as rugby fans and as a sport, no one wants to see that as a red card. Even people who are completely on board with... Um, sending people off for accidental collisions to the head. I mean, we've been told that if it, it has to be foul play, that's the first marker, that's the first indicator for a red card is, was there foul play? And if there wasn't foul play, it's not even a penalty. So once you start at that, was there foul play from Freddie Stewart there? Being honest, I think as as uh, trying to be as impartial as we can, I would say no, there was not foul play there because it was completely inadvertent. There were so many mitigating factors, and it happened so quickly that I would say there's not foul play, which means it's not even a penalty. I can under, it, it looked ugly, and it looked worse in slow motion, and it's a shame that Hugo Keenan had to go off for HIA and might have you know, su- suffered a head injury. But these things might happen accidentally in rugby matches, and we need to get to grips with that, I think. I want to make three really quick points. So the first one was that so Piper said um, in the current climate, and he and so the, the kind of landscape always makes me think of weather <laughs> yeah but, but he, made, he made this point and to be fair Scoey and I as soon as it happened and as soon as Freddie Stewart as soon as it happened Freddie Stewart went oh, as in put his hands out and towards mm. Keenan going oh my god I've hurt him um, and Scoey said he's in trouble they're going to go as soon as that and as soon as they go to the replay and as soon as as soon as it is determined as as foul play it's, it felt like a, a red card second point was that bizarrely as as Stuart was going off he sort of said I, I can't put my body in any other place and and Piper went well you can sort of and then this is terrible podcasting but he sort of moved his moved his shoulder and said you can sort of not do that yeah. it's really unfortunate that this is a Yaka paper incident involving an elbow after the 2019 yes, World quite. Cup the, picture, the elbow image yeah, in all the Wales fans sorry Charlie and, and then the final point was that it, the only thing I can really remember that it reminded me of the most was actually ironically a, um, a, a an incident involving Steve Borthwick and Kevin Sinfield's Leicester Tigers which is uh, the Guy Porter sending off against Clermont mm. last season when he's pressed out of the line not looking at Fritz Lee at all and the pass has sort of gone over both of them and all the time he's looking at the ball and there's been a head clash Fritz Lee uh, blood all over his face has has, has gone off for a HIA um, Porter, got, Porter got sent off I believe but he also got a three down to two ban so after the and I remember the press conferences in the week sort of asking Steve Borthwick saying you're going to defend you're going to contend this aren't you because it's not a tackle it's just a and he and he did actually what he, exactly what he did at the weekend which is sort of go that we're not going to we're not going to comment on it until the disciplinary process has uh, played out, which is happening tomorrow night, Tuesday night. Yeah, to say just a final note on it, Freddie Stewart's hearing will be in the next couple of days. Fascinating. Look mm. out on the website to see what happens there. Let's finish the section by by finishing on Ireland and a bit of praise. Charlie, you wrote a piece yesterday about Johnny Sexton and saying that he's he's probably the best six uh, best Ireland player in the Six Nations era. Just do you want to talk about that? What did you sort of see from him I just in think particular that cemented that? I think this has got to be the greatest Ireland team of all time, hasn't yep. it? Regardless of how they go at the World Cup, I just think that series win in New Zealand is huge. I think the manner of this Grand Slam and how they've built up to it, um, again, super impressive. And I think he is the greatest on-field influence on that greatest team. And I just think his, his how he governs momentum swings in games... Um, is and how all of that experience adds up, and he's obviously he's just so sharp. And actually, 
he he carried the fight to England a bit. It, while while those around, a couple of his touch finders were a bit oddly. Um, Oddly, kind of shaky. Will Greenwood, writing for us, said that he had a 50p pence for, yeah, for yeah. a boot Tober in the first half because yeah. he kept shanking them and it was a bit yeah. all over the place. Apart, but apart from that, the, the inside, really clever inside ball across the face of Omani to Van der Fleer, which needed a, an awesome tackle from Willis and then really good scramble defence on the edge. That led to the quick tap penalty and he's... Yeah, he saw his name up in lights there, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, but when he did it and when he got held up, I thought that's... He just looked... That's a little bit muddled, that decision. But yeah. he, was, he was really kind of really pushing the envelope for, for Ireland but then when it when it really came down to it and as I say with England 10-9 behind um, looking like they were looking like they were growing although clearly shattered that kick just over the top of uh, Marchant who just come on for Arundel causing Watson to get back and then you know three chasers bundle him over the try line that's what I'm talking about about governing momentum swings and that's where he's just been so impressive over the last um well, I think even in even in this mini World Cup period, because this World Cup cycle, sorry, because he personifies how Ireland have pushed through a tricky period with wanting to expand their phase play. You know, getting absolutely pumped by England a couple of times in 2020, but sticking with it, um, and that's that's what's got them to this point. He's like a fine wine, isn't he? He's like Tom Brady in his 30s and 40s. Just seems to get better. Uh, Charles, the debate about whether he's the great. We were sort of chatting yesterday about whether he was the greatest Irish player. Ever now, th- now that's a trickier debate because mm. you have got Willie John McBride, you've got Mike Gibson, you've got Fergus Slattery, you- you've got Brian O'Driscoll, Paul O'Connell. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that, I find that quite hard to sort of determine. But do you certainly think he's in the conversation? Definitely, just through pure, you know, sort of achievements and trophies won, and also what he's achieved at the club game as well. You know, with Leinster, which has been part of a, a, f- a phenomenal golden era for. For Leinster, so yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be arguing against Johnny Sexton being probably top five Ireland players of all time, and certainly I think anybody could put forward a good case for him being number one. Lovely stuff. Right, a couple of other games on, sorry Charles, not Super Saturday, just bog standard yeah, bog Saturday. Standard Saturday. Um, so let's touch on them next. Okay, two other games. The game before Ireland-England was in Paris, and Charles Richardson, you were there. So let's hear about France against Wales. You certainly got to see some uh, fun attacking rugby, put it that way. Yeah, loads of tries. I mean, Wales scored four of them, um, and they did look improved. Um, I think I think there was a little bit of the mentality with them that they'd a bit of an English mentality, or certainly a similar mentality to what England had, and that it was almost backs against the wall nothing to lose really a bit like England going to Dublin um, n- nobody's expecting us to win so we might as well go and you know just lay it all on the line give it a good shot and, and Wales started the better of the two teams they know that France love to start matches quickly really well get points on the board early and they did they did thwart that and Wales scored the first try gorgeous Reese Webb pass actually into the midfield that cut out the entire French midfield and North went under the sticks at no point, even with them 7-0 up, did I ever think we're going to be seeing an upset here. And actually, as soon as France scored, well, I think Ramos kicked a penalty and then France scored a France scored that fantastic um, Peno try. And all of a sudden, after a fantastic Welsh 15 minutes, they were behind on the scoreboard. And it was sort of like, yeah, I think their, their, goose, is, their goose is cooked after 15 minutes. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it was the best Welsh sort of spell 15-20 minute spell of the tournament I, I think such a a kind of wild tournament for Wales we, I've written up some Six Nations awards uh, which should be on the website 
today, Monday, at some point. And and Russ Petty tweeted out that Wales in the t- in the tournament made twenty six changes to their selection, which over the course of five games is 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 unsustainable, I guess, in the short term. But obviously, the whole the whole concept for Warren Gatland over this last five weeks, I think, has just been over five games. Sorry, has just been to see what he has for the yeah. World Cup. And did he have a quote afterwards about something like? Teams will underestimate us going into the World yeah. Cup, or teams won't expect much from we're, us. We're going to we're going to surprise a few. Yeah. is what he thought. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure. I, d- I don't know. I mean, they've got a lot of work to do. They've I'll got find, a lot of work to do. I'll I mean, find, it's weird as well. Sorry, Joe. It's weird that seven, uh, six of that starting pack in Paris on Saturday, six of the eight started that World Cup semi final loss against South Africa. So that shows. You know where they've come from, what the and that was a Gatland side where they've come from with the side that Gatland built and where they've developed to. Four years on, six of that pack is the same. Just on that, he he said in the build up to the game, it was sort of hinted that you know this might be the the last hurrah for some of the players selected. Uh, watching the game, did any sort of spring to mind where you thought, oh, I'm not sure he'll be at the World Cup, or do you think they'll all be there? Do you reckon it was a a bluff? What do you think? I think certainly it was the last Six Nations for a few of them. Um, in terms of the ones that featured on in Paris, they're surely all going to be there or thereabouts. The, the, the yeah. big decision is whether he chooses to move on from the likes of Alan Wynne Jones, that sort of thing. Is are they now over the hill? That's the big decision. I mean, to be honest, I think that for all of Dan Bigger's strengths, I think that Owen Williams has potentially emerged as the sort of preeminent fly half at the minute for Wales, and I think I, I think Dan Bigger will be in the World Cup squad, but I think they should be going into it like sort of, you know, hanging their hat on on Owen Williams at fly half and and letting him, you know, and sort of unlock try and unlock some defences because against England he looked he looked composed, he looked like he was bringing a good sort of level of structure and organisation to the Welsh attack. Um, and actually, it was something that Bigger didn't really bring on Saturday. For all of Welsh's attacking, Wales's attacking strengths, it was more because they tried to come out the blocks and play really quickly and sort of move France around, which is very easy to do. But I didn't think that for a second that the sort of you know it, fe- it felt a bit haphazard sure. at the start. It was it was impressive and it was quick. It was swift. But you always felt like it was unsus- that level of speed was unsustainable. And at some point some control was required and where was it coming from such a mad um few years that owen williams has had he, he was he went to japan for a bit he went to worcester he's gone to the ospreys and played yeah. really well and now he yeah. seems to have emerged as the starting fly half ahead of bigger which it which just shows you know rugby's weird careers can suddenly turn around if you've got the talent and the irony of course is that when he was at leicester he was um probably the best welsh fly half playing in the uk he was starting in a very good leicester team that was getting to knock out stages of the premiership and of and of europe um and there was a lot of call in the welsh media for him to be starting at fly half and then never really did i mean i think he had a couple of runouts at 12 um in that in that sort of at that point but yeah made his first start at fly half in this year's six nations which seems crazy good six nations for a few ex worcester players yeah do van der merver ollie lawrence yeah um, Williams. yeah yeah because they're coming into that tournament off the back of just the just the oddest year yeah, 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 absolutely wild. Uh, Charles, when when Penno, um, when Penno, when Dupont threw that pass for Penno, I know you said it was your highlight. It, what, are we talking hats in the air from the crowd, baguettes flying in celebration? Yeah, I mean, there was it, was, a, it was pretty great. And Dupont's had a great tournament, but that amazing. might be that might be my favourite moment. Yeah, it was a standing. There was a standing ovation, and uh, <laughs> I mean, 
So that pass was fired directly towards the press box. Obviously, we were on halfway. But, but, but <laughs> what, no, so, no, so we were on halfway. And obviously, this was in the 22. But it was that direction. It was coming towards us. And actually, when he f- flung it, I was like, well, it's almost a bit of a pass to nothing, really. Because he just needs to get it somewhere. He just needs to put enough a, a sort of and just have enough hang time and, and air time on it that whereby Penno can judge it and go and attack it. But with the flight of it, I thought he just, I thought he just lobbed it straight into touch because mm. it went so high to start with and it had such a loop on it that I thought, oh my god, he's just, he's just flung it straight into touch and he didn't. It dropped beautifully straight into the path of Penno and it was, it was an absolute. And that came off the back of a gorgeous Untamak fade left Tompkins for that. Tompkins was actually somebody who who I think should be starting at 12 for Wales and showed had some really good moments in Paris. But then a couple of times as well, he was mugged off by Untermag and, and completely manhandled um, by Jonathan Dante early on, where he just ripped his skin off, really hit him so hard that it, you know, it was just the, the, one of the biggest hits I've seen in a long time. Like Mortal Kombat. Yeah, 12 on, 12, sort of big 12 on, on um, slightly smaller 12 who... Um, uh, who's who's a physical player, um, Tompkins, but Dodsey, uh, yeah, manhandled him. But he was good, but then, yeah, Untermack just ghosted him. Dupont had this cunning decoy run in and out, left Wales defence for dead, great offload from Untermack, and then that, that Dupont pass. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. It was it was a sensational try. Saw the, um, saw the fireworks going off at, at full time. It, mm. you, that was your second Stade de France trip of this Six Nations? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we're going to have... A very fun World Cup, is that fair to say, based on everything you've seen over the last few months? I think that's very fair to say, unless France get knocked out in the group stages, which I know yeah. is immensely unlikely, but I think the, the, the dummies will be spat out if that happens and they will shut up. I mean, the, the French are famous for doing that anyway. I remember speaking to Michel Roux Jr. when I interviewed him last year ahead of Le Crunch. Uh, he went to watch Harlequins play Toulouse and he was supposed to be hosting a post-match function in the stadium and Harlequins won and it was cancelled. Um, <laughs> so, so, and, and the same on Saturday so will there uh, be knockout stages if, if uh, <laughs> it would be very French for them not to be um, and the same on Saturday actually because obviously if Wales had won that game there wouldn't there would not have been a firework display uh, and also what is also quite funny is if, the, if Wales had won on Saturday there was going to be no post-match media from France whatsoever I got uh, speaking of fireworks I got absolutely done in Dublin very louder than I can remember oh, yeah. had a game before and just wasn't expecting it and just before kickoff yeah yeah, yeah. it got oh, me as well goodness. Ireland v France it's like a gun it's like a, it's like yeah. four gunshots it isn't was it like, it was like a gunshot and unfortunately I was sat down and Will Keller our colleague from from the times was was standing up so that I mean obviously that accentuates your <laughs> shock and he was just as shocked as me I think <laughs> but um yeah, you've got so to be careful up there you're very high if you really lose high. your if you lose yeah, your balance really all of a sudden steep. you're you're t- Tumbling. It's steep at the Aviva. Um, let, let's also touch on Scotland against Italy. Um, I think, Charles, you mentioned earlier, this was a fairly underwhelming Scottish performance. And, and does that actually make it more frustrating that Italy couldn't produce a... a, a I mean, Italy yeah. just haven't won, which, no. which seems weird because yeah. we've been praising them so highly and actually... They had a better points difference than Wales, I just checked, and they, they've produced so much great rugby this tournament and yet they, they're without a win. So much, So much good stuff from Italy... So much they seem to have they seem to have improved at the areas that they were bad at before, and then sort of taken their foot off the pedal at the areas they were good at. There's so much good cohesive teamwork and attacking fluidity and shape and all those things that we we're not used to seeing in an Italian side. And then sloppy individual errors let it undo all of that work, and that's what happened against Scotland. That's sort of what happened against Wales as well. Um, 
yeah, I don't know if it's better application, better attention to detail. I don't know if it's a, a lack of sort of fitness. And obviously, you know, when you're not fit enough, you that's when these sloppy errors creep in. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the scrum as well, um, it's, it's unlike an Italian side to be dominated at the scrum, but they were they were really... They were, they were demolished, really, by the Scottish scrum on, on Saturday, um, which is a worry for them because, um, obviously, they're in the pool with France and New Zealand. Well, I, I was just <laughs> going to say, just to finish finish off, I mean, I, I don't want to take the air out of what's been, a, I, th- I think, a, a really positive tournament for, for Kieran Crowley and his squad. But, but realistically, do we expect that Italy are going to challenge France or New Zealand in, in, in Pool A of the World Cup and, and cause them too many issues to worry about progressing my, my feel is maybe it's a bit early Charlie what, what do you think I think it's a bit early but I think if if they put up some sort of fight in those games and as I keep saying ad nauseum probably sorry about this um, about them if they stay true to the style that they've shown and they keep getting better at that so they have something to hang their hat on I think it can still be a positive tournament because I agree Colsey I think it's been a really positive and um, oh poor Garbizzi Jr. I th- with penalty advantage, so he did. I understand why he's why he did stretch, but um, just coughing that up yeah. would have been just such a yeah. such a cool moment. I think the caveat. I think the caveat for Italy as well that we should mention is yes, okay, they did fall narrowly short against Scotland, and they weren't great. However, they were missing their two sort of most dangerous, most cutting backs with the most cutting edge, Tommaso Manoncello and Andrzej Kavuatso. Mm-hmm. So, and they they look like big losses. Other teams have, have greater depth than Italy. And I think with Italy, if they're going to trouble New Zealand or France, they have to be full strength starting 15, certainly. Kavuatso is a really uh, interesting one, isn't it? Because he's, he's clearly such an intriguing, exciting player that he, that he gets hyped up. But actually his importance is really quite quite significant because... They do, they do create a lot and they do stretch sides on the edges. And when you've got the ad- additional threat of him ghosting into lines and, you know, making two-on-twos into two-on-ones by burning someone on the outside, then you're, or, or, you know, or getting on the end of these breaks because he's just, he's just so quick, mm. it, it, it makes a big difference. It really does. He, I mean, one of, one of my abiding memories of the Six Nations, I think, will be, be watching him live at, at Twickenham. It was just, yeah, very cool. Come on, Italy. Prove us wrong at the World Cup. Cause a shock would certainly uh, certainly make things interesting. Okay, next we're going to just have reflect on what England have learned from this tournament, really, and what they're going to take forward into the World Cup. Okay, Steve Borthwick's first campaign, and he won two games. And England finished fourth. I mean, I mean, it wasn't a huge improvement from the from the Eddie Jones era, but then again, he was given a bit of a tricky task, sort of coming in late and trying to completely revamp a squad who who looked as though they'd lost a bit of direction. So, I don't know, Charlie, if you were giving this team a quick a quick grade, if you had to sort of assess their tournament as a whole, what would you give them? C. I, I was thinking CC plus. I was thinking C plus as well. Sorry. I think I just think just the, the manner of that loss to France um, mm. skews everything because it was so startlingly bad and so <laughs> and, and just weird in, in retrospect because they what you expect from a Steve Borthwick team is is incremental gains and it was just a huge step backwards and then actually if you'd have thought the traje- the trajectory of how they went from Ireland to Wales when. As I keep saying with the two wickets uh, analogy, I think their performance was better than the score uh, suggested in, in Cardiff. 
and if you that their trajectory in that game seems to suggest that they would run France close and then produce something like they did against Ireland when they troubled the best team in the world. Um, so that just weird trough in the middle is is when when they had two weeks building up to it. It was really strange. Now the one thing I can think of. Um, more the more obvious thing without knowing kind of anything that's going on behind the scenes is that sometimes we hear retrospectively that coaches have really flogged players um, in the conditioning side of things I think England did that in 2018 when they had a really poor Six Nations Eddie Jones just felt as though they needed the block of, of fitness and that potentially it, it would be a case of the players having to defy that fatigue in, in, in games and you know and where the, where the results went so be it that can be the only thing I can really think of for, for sort of a um, an excuse over uh, you know if we take if we take the the Smith selection stuff as a kind of separate. Um, but I think yeah to to recover from that and to to lay some foundations. They as I say they do have to build on those foundations very quickly ahead of the World Cup. But I think they will with the with the coaches that are coming in um, and the fact that it's going to be Steve Borthwick's kind of. Feel, it will feel really like Steve Borthwick's mm. team with the additions of Wigglesworth and especially Alan Walters. Um, so yeah, that, I, I feel like maybe the tiniest step forward, but sort of with a kind of more hopeful outlook. The, the first half in Dublin and, and how well they, they played actually made me more frustrated <laughs> with, just, with the France performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with more the, puzzled. The, the total lack of application that took them a week before versus the determination and grit that they showed I was yeah I was actually I was actually quite annoyed because it, it just you know you, you you shouldn't be that they shouldn't have been as bad as they were like it, no. just, it just wasn't acceptable was it Ch- Charles no. give me give me some positives Charles give me reasons to feel good about England um, maybe maybe Manu Timalaghi's return I meant to talk about this in the earlier section but mm-hmm. he, he was he was quite handy yeah he was handy he was certainly he was uh he was he was solid. He was solid. I, I, he's not the same beast of old, is he? No, um, no. He's really not. There was, a, there was a moment in that first half. You know, we were chatting about it beforehand, where he ran one on one into Kalen Doris, and he lost that collision. Now, I mean, the man who's twangy of old could have run head on head into anybody and not lost the collision. Hopefully, not head on head in the uh, current climate. No, though, otherwise, Jakob Piper had been straight on the phone to Marius Yonker. Yes, yeah, exactly. um, and um, he would have agreed with the facts. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, death knell. I, yeah, I agree with the facts. Terror. Yeah, I agree with the facts. That is, I mean, what does that even mean? Uh, surely, if it's facts, it's it doesn't need agreeing with. Does it? If it's facts, it's facts. Isn't we it, are it's, it's not objective. On a tangent, right now. Yeah. Come back to it Manu. Talk sorry. to me about Manu. Yeah, Manu. Um, uh, and oh, oh, positives. Scrum. Scrum was a positive, I think, especially on the improvements. Especially as it was ranked. Steve Borthwick told us ranked as the worst scrum in Tier One nations. I don't think it is now. Um, and also they. When uh, replacements come on, McAvoy, Polo and Dan Cole, you don't lose anything there. And also, I think that first half in Dublin, as you've touched on, um, Colsey, is a massive positive because I think they have proved that they can do it and that what um, Kevin Sinfield defensively is trying to implement is doable, is achievable and works because they had Ireland rattled, they had them on the back foot. It was a, a cute inside pass. That was the only time that they were... That their try line was breached and that they were properly unlocked in that first half. Um, other positives: Freddie Stewart's performance at, at fifteen, um, yeah. not not obviously not including Saturday where he only had managed forty minutes. Um, but he's made that shirt his own. Um, 
Ollie Chesham and what a, what a um, sort of heartbreaking uh, news last week that he's now touch and go for the World Cup with an ankle injury. Um, the back row, other than the French game, had very good moments. I was surprised to see that Jack Willis actually, despite all of these sort of wild tackling statistics in the individual matches, he's not in like the sort of even the top ten tackles made in the tournament as a whole. Um, which means he must have had a very quiet game against France in terms of in terms of tackles made. Probably I'd, even quieter than I expected. I'd have to thought. I'd have to look it up, but but yeah, I yeah. Think that's right. Missed also, a game, missed a game, didn't he? He yeah, did miss yeah. a game, but yeah. so did um, so the top tackler of the of the entire tournament is Matt Ferguson, and he was on the bench on Saturday. Yeah. Um, Willis with twenty uh, tackles in the first half and two in two in the second half, obviously because of his, his yellow card. Yeah, because he was off the field for a bit. Which so. again, actually, many people, we, which we haven't touched on yet, many people think that was more of a red than the than stewards, and actually a lot of. Irish fans have, 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 have said that as well, haven't they? Charlie, you, you helpfully have uh, written on the website three signs England are heading in the right direction. So can you tell me what the three signs are that England are heading they're in the actually, right they're, direction? They're the, ones that, they're the ones that, yeah, just rack my brains. Um, they're the ones <laughs> Sorry, that, a few of the ones that um, Charles has, met, has mentioned there, the set piece, um, a little bit of the direct directness of their attack they have um i just think to have that whether it was ollie lawrence or um or manu tulagi they have that threat there just to touch on manu's uh, manu tulagi's performance i actually thought defensively he was he was pretty strong yeah, yeah. yeah. No, tug furlong tug furlong yeah. wasn't a factor because a lot of the time at least twice maybe three three times tulagi was sort of pressurizing him and and making and fluff and kind of causing those uh, really devastating passes that Furlong can throw to kind of be misdirected. I think Henshaw um, went by him in the first half, didn't he? Maybe, yeah. I mean, Henshaw's, Henshaw's all Gun. awesome. Yeah. Um, but Arundel got back. So, that, so this, did, this yeah. was a thing, yeah, a real tangent here, but Arundel's performance, I know he got, he did a bit of an Ollie Hassel Collins, didn't he? That really yeah. reminded me of that same yeah, same yeah. moment where there was a, and again, I think I went, <laughs> in my press going, just go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but in your head, you're, in your head, you're, in your, head your heart, you're going, your yeah. heart, you're going, you go on. To, in you your head, you're going, go. yeah. nobody, got, nobody in the coaching staff wants you to run this back. Yeah, so just bear that in mind. <laughs> but Keenan, Keenan lassoed him and um, Porter was over to win. He had that moment and then Matt Hansen and I think uh, Henshaw, sorry, got across. And there was, so there's two turnovers with two runs, which, but the nuts and bolts of it, one a jackal turnover, didn't he? He's quick enough to pressurise in those in those kicking exchanges. And actually, one point that I remember people making about um, Lewis Rusamit when he came on the scene was that at this stage of his career, he might make wrong defensive reads, but he's actually so quick over the ground that he can almost recover. Yeah, And that's really cool because what is happening is that you're not costing your team that much necessarily because you're recovering to... Make make any given tackle, but also that you're you're learning and going. Oh, geez, yeah, okay, that's the right decision to make <laughs> next time. Uh, what did you ask me, Colsey? Oh, the the areas <laughs> areas to get better. The just kick just so in two games against Wales and, and Ireland, they've kicked on their own terms, done it a lot better. Um, against France, they didn't kick on their own terms because they were a bit frantic and because France went hard at the breakdown. So they now have that is how they the, the kicking is unavoidable. It's such an important. You know, Fran- uh, Ireland kicked loads when they in their best performance against France. So they're going to have England are going to have to do it, um, and they're going to have to do it in the manner that they did against Ireland and against Wales. Um, and then the other the other area um, was the yeah so set piece attack kicking on their own terms and just the multi faceted nature of that defensive performance. So um, good decisions in in phase play generally. Uh, really good scramble when they had to and um, just being aware most of the time to those set piece 
plans that Ireland had and were always going to have. They're always going to have a, a strike or two up their sleeves. I'm, I'm not even going to check the article because I'm sure that you'll no, three out of no, three. Please, please three subscribe. Correct. Please subscribe, and, and it's more than that. We get below. We get below the pay fade. So. The, yeah. uh, the, so the reason I didn't respond was because I was looking at the World Cup bracket and I was trying to work out how soon Ireland could potentially play France and, and you could get them in because that was my next question because I'm going to ask you to pick a favourite for the World Cup. So you've got, you've got 30 seconds to think about it while I explain that. So Ireland and France could meet because you get the winner of Pool B against the runner-up of Pool A in the quarterfinals and, and vice versa. So unless they both win their groups, you're potentially not getting Ireland-France until the final. So Charles... Ireland or France for the World Cup? Who's your favourite? Uh, well, on the basis that Ireland aren't getting out of the pool, I'll go France. <laughs> Are they actually not? I'm. That's a joke for our listeners across the Irish Sea, if we have any. Um, yeah, it's, not anymore. It's not anymore. Yeah. Uh, no, I will. I will go. I I will go France because I think they they they've sh- they've built. They've built, they've developed, they've got better. I think they have better individuals than Ireland, and I know it's not about the individual, but sometimes in those knockout matches, uh, just that little extra individual brilliance can be what swings it. France, with a home World Cup, um, you know, they've only lost at home once under Galtier, I think, um, and that was to, that was to Scotland um, in that 2021. Don't, don't say Scotland with that turn of voice. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Sorry, you've done me that. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. That was subconscious. Okay. It was actually, they lost to a very good Scottish performance, is what, go. is what we should say. Uh, and that is genuinely what I believe. Um, so France, but I think France, France. I think France's favourites. I think France's favourites just. Hi, Charlie. South Africa. Oh, what? Yeah, I just, I think I was wasn't watching. wasn't the question. I was watching. I was, well, I think, I think France over Ireland, I think South Africa over them both. I was just watching. Watching the game on Saturday, thinking that South Africa will be looking. I know Ireland had a few guys out, um, but I just thought that they will really be licking their lips at the mall, um, at the mall gains they can make, and the how much that their hyper aggressive um, line speed can maybe scramble that Irish phase play. And the the game in in November in Dublin was brutal, wasn't it? And actually, if Ireland had um, pushed a couple of couple more passes and, and managed to beat that blitz a couple of times, and they could have been more comfortable than they were, which was reasonably comfortable in, until the last five minutes in that game. But I just think that on uh, at a neutral venue, that pool game is going to go towards South Africa. And um, how funny would it be if someone won from the other side of the draw? Well, I was, how, I was just going to say those guys punching each other out, and then. But I think whoever gets, maybe whoever gets through that quarterfinal from those quarterfinals, sorry, from the tough side of the draw, um, will have a lot of confidence. And then, I mean, in, unless there are improvements on the other side, of the, on the poor side of the draw, the poor, the on that on the other side of the draw, then it's going to be. Um, we're looking at a France Island well, final. Yeah, yeah, it can be. I mean, we've said it before that the draw is so stupid, but the fact that you can win a group if you're Ireland and then what your reward is facing one of New Zealand or France or Italy. Sorry, Charles. Yeah, yeah, Georgia Italy final. I mean, I, I just find that absolutely madness. It's not it's not very fair if you're no. number one side in the world and that's the draw you get. Um for what it's worth, I rec- I still I just love the idea of France winning a World Cup at home. I just think it's really it'd just be great it, I, it, it would be great if it was one of those two a Northern Hemisphere yeah. winner would be would be really cool for the, yeah. for the sport in these parts I think it would be good I think it would be very good indeed right after an excellent men's Six Nations tournament we're now going to chat to Fiona Thomas about the women's Six Nations tournament which gets underway this weekend can we just start with England do you, do you think 
There's a couple of key injuries in the squad. How are they sort of shaping up ahead of uh, trying to defend their title? Straight off the back of a World Cup, you always feel that, you know, this these sorts of championships take on a bit of a different meaning. Um, and certainly I think it will be a, a sort of transitional campaign for a lot of teams, England included. Um, so, yeah, as, as, uh, in terms of the Red Roses squads, uh, it's very, di- very different to, um, you know, this time last year when they were, you know, getting all things prepped for, for that tournament in New Zealand. Um, there's been a, a few um, key injuries to a lot of experienced names. Emily Scarrett, we don't think will feature. Um, Zoe Harrison, their, their fly half, who who was one of the Red Roses' standout players, to be honest, at, at the World Cup last year. And she thought, unfortunately, she's done her ACL. So it's going to be really interesting to see how, how, how kind of, you know, they go this campaign without these sorts of big names. Abby Ward, another standout forward who was, you know, so so dominant for England in the line out um you know has been a mainstay of that side for so long she's obviously announced her pregnancy which is super exciting um so yeah lots of lots of you know changes but um we've got a raft of new faces within the within the team as well and one I think worth keeping an eye on is May Campbell Saracen's hooker I think she's been capped at under England under 20 level quite a few years ago but she's always sort of shone for Saracens in the in the Premier 15 so got a totally different feel to be honest to, co- to compare to to this time last year I, I was going to ask you about new faces so that, so that works quite well and uh, sort of a familiar face back in the squad is is Mo Hunt after she was left out of the World Cup squad can I just ask about and that was quite a controversial sort of talking point at the time given how she'd been playing and what she contributed uh, why why is she now back in do you think is it just purely down to outstanding form Oh, literally, Ben. Like, she has been on fire for Gloucester Heartbreak in the Premier 15s this season. The girl has not stopped. You know, ever since getting that that sort of shock, I guess, that that, that shock to say that she wasn't going to be in that World Cup squad um, last, last year, she's spoken about how much that hurt. And within 48 hours of receiving that news, she was literally back out on a rugby pitch, you know, playing for her club. Um, she's a, a woman who wears a heart on her sleeve and she literally just threw herself back into it and... She has sort of spearheaded Gloucester Hartbury's title charge for this season. She's, without a shadow of the doubt, the most informed nine in the Prem 15s at the minute. And um, I will be certainly surprised if she does not kind of get that that starting shirt. It's the final Women's Six Nations for, for two kind of pivotal figures, really. Simon Middleton is the coach and Sarah Hunter getting a, a, a very deserved farewell in Newcastle for the first game. Just a word on, on those two and, and I guess try to sum up how much they've contributed to, to the England women's team. Where to start? I mean, Sarah Hunter, wow, what a player, what an ambassador for the sport. She has, you know, literally been the, the figurehead for figurehead of the English women's game for so long now. Um, and to it, it's what she deserves, really, to, to bow out at Newcastle, her home stadium. You know, the, the script couldn't have been written better for her, really. I think when she looks back on her career, you know, there, it will be a bit tinged with, with disappointment for those two back-to-back World Cup final defeats. But let's not forget that she's she's led her country for fantastically during during the time that she has worn that, that captaincy armband. And let's not forget she's a World Cup winner as well. You know, she was part of that 2014 squad. I remember when I was out at the World Cup last year, Simon Middleton did sort of, you know, he was heaping praise on her um, for when she became England's most capped uh, uh, player. 
Uh, and he said this this kind of stunning line where whereby he said, you know, he had never seen Sarah Hunter train poorly. Um, you know, there are some players who rock up and, and might not give 100% in the training session or might have an odd day, an off day. But Sarah, he said, always gave or gives 100%. And I think that's what we'll remember when it comes to Sarah Hunter. As for Simon Middleton himself, yeah, you know, he's been at the helm of, of that English women's team now for, for nearly a decade. You know, he has overseen some extraordinary change. You know, if you think about from going right the way uh, back to kind of when the game was, when the women's testing was pretty, very amateur, moving into semi-professionalism and now obviously kind of, if you're England, you know, well into professionalism. He's been pivotal in, in you know, wanting to, to push the game on, to recognise where the women's game needs to go. And he was a very influential figure in, in pushing the, the rugby football union to make those full-time contracts. Is it lenient that he's in charge for another championship, given what's happened in the context of the last two World Cup cycles? Maybe. Would you see that happen in the men's game? Definitely not. But, you know, not taking any way, anything away from what he's achieved in charge of the Red Roses. And it's great that he, he, he also gets that send-off as well come April the 29th um, when England welcome France in the, what could be a historic occasion at Twickenham stands. First standalone Women's Six Nations fixture um, at the home of English rugby. And I think we're on, we could well be on to a, a, another, another crowd record, I think. I think the latest figure was like 36,000 tickets have been sold for that one. So that should be good. feels like it's in a, a really interesting position given that England have won five out of the last six, I think it is, in the last four in a row. But combined with Middleton leaving, combined, like like you said, with the injuries to, to Zoe Harrison and Emily Scarrett and whether Scarrett's going to be available, the, this this idea that you're trying to, to rebuild a squad but you're bringing back my hunt you didn't pick in, in, who do you think realistically I, I guess I guess two parts to this question it, would it actually be good for the tournament to have a different winner just to kind of you know build up competitiveness and 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 just I don't know make it more of a uh, potentially interesting competition and also secondly it, who are the biggest challenges do you think who are going to potentially push England and, and potentially take the title great question I mean you know we all want a competitive women's Six Nations. That is ultimately the issue, which is holding the, the championship back. You know, we've just come off the back of a great, enthralling men's Six Nations where, you know, you couldn't call some of those games, you know, the way Italy pushed uh, pushed France. And, you know, you, you, you want that in the women's championship. You don't want to see, you know, lopsided score lines week in, week out. And I think it has sort of... It's not the elephant in the room because everyone knows that it's not a, a competitive championship um, yet. I might I might have spoken too soon, you know, given the the change that we've seen across a lot of the squads, um, you know, this season. You know, we, we could be in for a, a kind of completely different ball game. So maybe maybe that will come back to haunt me. I don't know. Um, but yeah, like you know, it's all a cycle, isn't it, in women's sport? If you have a competitive product, and I hate using that word when it comes to describe sport, but you know, that's when you you attract sponsors and partners who want to be involved in you know promoting you know the game. Um, in terms of England's greatest challenges, I mean, France are always lurking, aren't they? Um, but 
you know, they, they, they're a side who've gone through like immense change as well since the, the World Cup. So, you know, you've got Jesse Tremoulier, former World Player of the Year, retired, Laurie Sansous, aka also known as the mini Dupont of women's game, last year's player of the championship. She's also retired as well. Uh, they've got a new captain in Audrey Falani. Great story. She wasn't even in France's World Cup squad uh, last year, and now she's suddenly the captain. So Fiona, if you have to pick a, a winner, who who do you feel is the most likely team? You've you've just got to go for England, haven't you? They're number one in the world still for a reason. They're World Cup finalists for a reason. They will be so determined to bounce back from that World Cup final defeat and to sort of you know restore that sort of normality, if you like. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go for the Red Roses. Very good. It all gets underway this weekend. Would highly recommend Fiona's interview with Lydia Thompson, which was on the Telegraph website recently as well to uh, a bit of essential reading before it gets underway. Fiona, thanks for your time. Cheers, Ben. See ya. Let's, uh, let's jump now to some of your reader's questions. Thank you all uh, for sending in your questions, not just for this episode, actually, but throughout the whole Six Nations. They've, they've been really nice to sort of hear from you and get your opinions. Um, and we're going to start with a question this week from our colleague at the Daily Mail, Alex Bywater, who says, is Charlie wearing that jumper again? Charlie, what jumper are you wearing? got a WhatsApp message from Alex um, querying the jumper, which is a bit sad. No, but oh. I've, gone, I've gone from yellow to green. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, You'll of, be able to see it. It's, if, uh, it. it's now sort of a toothpaste number, would you say? I mean, yeah. so I'm just trying to think. It's sort of uh, a nice polo. Peppermint rather peppermint. than I'm, Yeah, yeah peppermint I'm wearing a similar colour and I literally put it on before I left home. And I thought, we've, we've both got Irish ancestry, haven't we? So oh. maybe that's... Maybe that's the reason. We accidentally sort of celebrating Ireland's success. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. I'm wearing one of Rishi Sunak's finest quarter zips. (laughs) So you are. So you are. And that's on trend for this podcast. Correct. Absolutely. On to to other questions. Uh, Dickie asks, oh, this is actually good. How long until players uh, seek dangerous contact to win penalties and force cards against the opposition? It's already happening, Dickie. It's already happening. Already happening. Um, Not saying that... Ireland were definitely doing it. I'm really not saying that, but um, <laughs> he's, he's not saying there it so was much, a little. So. There was a little exchange after the. I think after the Don Brett one, which was one of those ones that looks really innocuous live, um, but then the replay looked terrible and um, it looked like a shoulder charge from Don Brandt towards the top of Sexton's neck. Um, but Sexton went down. I mean, because it would have hurt, and uh, <laughs> I was sort of chasing him round, going. Oh. Sir, if he's holding his head, is he going off for a HIA? And that was, I mean, there is no place for pundits sort of, well, there almost isn't a place for pundits kind of accusing players of play acting because it's they put their bodies on the line in what is a super physical, um, super physical sport. But it certainly is already happening. Um, and I'm fairly sure that, you know, players, players know that if they've been involved in a, in a decision that could be questioned and there could be a bit larger sanctions for it I'm sure that they're staying down to, to draw attention to it watching on TV j- just to note I could hear Farrell a lot and and that was clearly part of the part of the plan and I don't think he was talking just to get a relationship with the ref I think he was talking to try and ruffle up Ireland and unsettle them this is fascinating because this whole Owen Farrell talking to refs became a clearly became an issue within the England camp because Eddie Jones mentioned it and sort of suggested that that was the main reason Courtney Laws was taking over the captaincy since then and even since Owen Farrell's taken on the captain's taking taking the captaincy back um, he's still been a bit subdued in how he's interacted with the refs that went out the window oh, on yeah. Saturday and yeah. I actually think he played a little bit better because of it so whether you go 
I don't know, whether you revisit the captaincy and just go, look, Owen Farrell's always going to be a leader. And you saw, I think, from their performance against Ireland what they missed against France. And that is what... He is a galvanising force. Far, he really yeah. is. Um, it's fired up, wasn't he? But yeah. whether if... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think... Ellis Genja's got a lot better, hasn't he? He's, re- he's really mm. good at... He's actually quite... Mm. Um, very emotionally intelligent with how he, talk, he talks to, to talks to referees, but I don't think he could have done any different for that uh, steward incident. Charles, my, my next question um, links to you uh, because Ooh. you've spoken a lot about the number eight position in the tournament and and about um, about Billy Vunipola and, and just wondering whether you know he should be he should be in the mix. And the question we had from Richie is: Is there anything to suggest that Billy Vunipola? isn't the best number eight available for England after Alex Dombrandt had an underwhelming championship. I mean, I, I almost find this question inadvertently quite funny because it seems like yesterday we were saying that Billy Vunipola didn't look that great and maybe they should turn to Alex Dombrandt. Yeah. And now we're, we're sort of back where we started kind of thing. But I think that's fine, isn't it? Because we now know. You know, we now know. He, you know, Alex Dombrandt has had, a, has had a shot and actually it's perfectly fine to say, OK, Billy Vunipola wasn't playing well enough as he should have been. Should Alex Dombrandt you know, have you have a shot and be given a go? The answer at that point point was probably yes. He's had a shot. Did he look like an international standard number eight? In parts, maybe, but certainly not as a whole, and certainly not against France, and maybe not against Ireland. Um, you know, the two best teams in the world. Should Billy Vunipola be brought back in? In my opinion, yes. Uh, I think that that England pack still, for all of its assiduousness, for all of its graft, uh, for all of its tenacity and for all of its improvements against Ireland, still lacks, I think, a big ball carrier. Well, you're right in a way because it, it's fine that, that we now might have a better opinion of, of Don Brandt, but we still don't really have an answer to what is suddenly becoming a bit of a problem position. I mean, I, mm. I don't know who the the number eight is to start the World Cup or who the best option is Charlie's leaning forward Charlie I I can see the World Cup camp being a bit of a shootout between Zach Mercer and Tom Willis Um, I'd be flabbergasted if he picks Mercer honestly I I really would because I I just don't think that he's a Borthwick I don't think he's a Borthwick player I mean I I rate him but I don't I don't know what Mercer gives you in the tight in what England are lacking that Don Brandt that Don Brandt does well somebody so my my contention with that would be um, they might look to someone like Launchbury as one of the locks, and then because obviously mm. obviously Zach Mercer's gone amazingly well in France, but he's going to be behind a pretty hefty Montpellier type five a lot of the time. And he actually hasn't been tearing it up that much this season, right? So, I, mean, I don't know if that's because he knows that he's going. I, I think Tom Willis is. I think yeah, Tom I, Willis I is more is, is more of what you're talking about, more mm, of what you definitely. need. He's just that. Yeah, just those, um, and he has been tearing it up this season yeah. for Bordeaux, like so, yeah. absolutely tearing it up. I, I think there is a there is a there is an argument, as you were saying, that maybe they might move Mario to six as well. Might Mario to six, and where does Tom Curry slot back in if he realizes that he actually doesn't have a number eight? Then might he play just his three best flankers and sod the number eight really, and just have your best one of your best flankers at eight, and just say we're just going to absolutely flood the break breakdown. We're going to play really quickly. Eddie was what well, Eddie was right all along. Yeah. Tom Curry's the number eight. <laughs> I mean, I, I think what's interesting there is that you talked about we've talked about Mercer and Tom Willis and Launchbury, who were players who, who weren't involved in the Six Nations and players who aren't mm. currently available. And I think actually that's why I've got a bit more sympathy for Steve Borthwick because yeah, you're still plugging a lot of holes here in not a lot of time I wrote this and I had to do um, the England uh, England player ratings for the, for the tournament and I wrote this in, in Lewis Ludlam's entry I thought he was one of clearly one of England's better performers but just ironically given 
the strength in depth or, or maybe just the options available to Borthwick in the back row. I think he will also be potentially, and he finished the tournament as one of the vice captains, but he could be, he could find himself in a real tight spot for, um, certainly for the first choice 23. I think he probably still, it probably now makes it to the World Cup. Well, it's the age old thing, isn't it? It's, it's the age old thing. Lewis Little was picked to start and he played very well. Yeah. Is there better? That's the question. Yeah, he went in and he played very, very well. But is there better? And the answer at the minute, probably, unfortunately for Lewis Ludlam, is yes. Okay, to finish up, we're going to chat about our Six Nations player of the tournament. Lots of strong contenders from Ireland and from France, obviously. Uh, Charles, I'll come to you first. Who is your your choice? Um, I think there's a lot of outstanding candidates, potentially more than ever, which sort of backs up our point of it being one of the best ever Six Nations. I think there are a lot of outstanding candidates across certainly two, maybe two or three teams. I'm going to go a little bit left field, and I'm going to say Thomas Ramos, the French fullback, um, in a position of outstanding depth um, across the Six Nations. You know, you look at Hugo Hugo Keenan, who is a phenomenal talent and one of the best fullbacks in the world, same as Freddie Stewart. I thought Thomas Ramos, in sort of his first stretch starting at fullback for France, looked as good as those two. He attacked beautifully. He was a second that sort of second playmaker alongside Romain Antemak. It's been a problem position for France. They've experimented with... um, Anthony Boutier and Melvin Jaminet, and now they've finally gone with Thomas Ramos. He seems to, Ramos, he seems to have made the shirt his own ahead of the World Cup. He came very, very close to beating Johnny Wilkinson's um, Six Nations uh, record of all time points of sorry points scored in one championship this year. Yeah, he finished on eighty four. He finished on eighty four points for the championship, which was miles ahead of everybody else. I think. Yeah, the next um, best. I've just got it in front of me. Uh, Johnny Sexton with thirty five. Right, so, so he's he's wiped the floor with everyone in points scored. That's because he scored tries and his his goal kicking was nigh flawless. If he'd have bagged, if he'd have if he'd have grabbed a try on on Saturday against mm-hmm. Wales, it would have been you know squeaky bum time for Wilkinson, as as they say. Uh, I was really impressed with him. Um, obviously, there were other outstanding candidates who were all phenomenal too. But I just thought, in terms of um, a sort of surprise factor and improvement, I, I feel like I- I'd happily go into bat for him. What happened to Big Boot Boutier? Where's he? Where's he gone? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's well, he's still playing, he's still knocking around, but he doesn't really get a look in now. So I know, I, 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 the, you know, the 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 sort of the executor of one of the greatest ever spiral punts. We'll always um, have that. We will always have that. But yeah, he doesn't get a look in at all now. I don't. I don't think he's. I don't think he was even in the wider forty-two man squad. I might be wrong on that. Don't please before don't the age of, Before the age of fifty twenty-twos, that was a twenty-two twenty-two. It, it was. Yeah. Oh, oh, I remember it that vividly. Should, that should have been like catching the golden snitch at Quidditch. Game over. Fifty points done. <laughs> Go home. Again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. See you later, England. Charlie, follow that. Who's, who's follow the golden snitch. It's impossible. Um, I had three. I had three Ireland players, um, and we again just yeah we were speaking off air about how it's probably actually more difficult to pick out a an individual from this Ireland side because they're so uh, so multifaceted, so good at everything. Um, I had I had um, Andrew Porter. Thought he was really good as far as carrying the fight conceded a few penalties here and there but um, exceptional around the field had Hugo Keenan um, boringly consistently good um, in the game um, what might be forgotten about the about the England game is that oddly enough they didn't actually dominate the air they were, they were doing well despite not dominating the air and the reason they didn't dominate the air was because Keenan was just phenomenal um, but I've gone with James Ryan he was one of um, 
a few guys that played every minute of that Grand Slam campaign, and I just I just feel like he's he's really pushed through. Talk about Maro Itoji sort of having a bit of a plateau, fairly or unfairly, with his form. I think Ryan has pushed through that and has gone on to another kind of another level. His carrying, if he, I mean, he had one of those loping carries against Italy, didn't he? And if, it, if and he had another one against Scotland, and if he'd if that offload to James Lowe had stuck, and Ireland would have had five bonus point wins out of out of five. Um, Ireland are less susceptible to being uh, bullied in the tight weather scrum or mall, and he's a big part of that. Um, yeah, so I, I re- just really, really impressed by his championship. Good choices uh, for me to finish up. Uh, it's it's an obvious one, but it's Antoine Dupont. I think I think he has sort of uh, just reminded everybody that he is the best player in the world with a, a sort of catalogue of amazing moments. The tackle in Dublin on on Matt Hansen, the pass uh, for Penner's try against Wales, just a masterclass against England at Twickenham, where he really should have had a, a standing ovation for everybody. And I know he's playing behind a great pack, but I thought his his control and his skill set was just extraordinary. He's a uh, different gravy. He, he simply is. And yeah, I think he. Uh, I think when we get to Men's World Player of the Year at the end of the year after the World Cup, I'll be very shocked if he isn't at least in the conversation. I'd just like to quickly mention Matt Canson, as I don't think we mentioned him in a positive, yeah. a positive frame in that conversation. And I thought he was outstanding on he, the wing for Ireland he, and really yeah. has made that shirt his own. And he's sort of, I think, up there as one of the best wings in the world, you know, and what a find. Max Han- Matt Canson for the best uh, post-match interview. Absolutely. Anyway, least, yeah. So there's that. Right, that's it for today and from us for the time being as well. So thanks to Charlie and Charles, as always. And a big thanks to Fiona Thomas, too. You can keep up with her work during the Women's Six Nations over the next few weeks. A massive thank you to everybody who has listened and supported the podcast throughout the Six Nations as well. We've really appreciated it. Charlie's given me a bow to my left. As always, there will be comprehensive coverage over on the Telegraph website as attention now turns to the Women's Six Nations, the Premiership and the return of European Rugby 2. If you've enjoyed the podcast over the last few weeks, please tell your friends and make sure to subscribe. From all three of us, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.